Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Carrie Mendoza, who works for Fair and Medicine and is floating around a lot of these professional organizations that are challenging gender medicalization. In this conversation, we talk about Carrie's experience as a emergency room doctor with the opioid epidemic and how that epidemic presaged what's going on with regard to gender via medicalization and surgical interventions and how the entire structure of the American medical industry is geared to fail at caring for individuals. Links to her work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Carrie Mendoza. So when we met a while ago, no, it seems like a while ago. Uh, Yeah. It's like on the other side of the year from, from now in Ireland. Yeah. You came up to me, you shook my hand, maybe you gave me like a smooch or something. I don't know. It was like uproariously good time in Ireland. But you broached yeah. the topic of the opioid crisis. Yes. And how, you know, there's a story there and there's a pattern of behavior on behalf of the medical complex. Yes. That you see similarities um, with this current epidemic yes if, uh, what what's your position on the gender thing the medical aspect of it like how do you think of what, it what do you mean yeah like uh, yeah, how do you uh, perceive it oh okay you, um r- there's obviously so many tentacles but in talking about it from like the culture of practicing medicine, once I started um, getting more involved in what was going on um, with, with it in terms of what I was seeing at my own kids' schools, and then once I got involved in FAIR and was interacting with more parents across the country. And, and um, at that time, when I got involved with FAIR, like Colin Wright was working at FAIR. So just kind of got, you know, my, um, Abigail Schreier's book had come out. She was on the board of advisors. So I got exposed to like a deeper level as to what was going on. And I really had a lot to me parallels with what I had seen during the opioid crisis and and specifically there was something in the opioid crisis was like how how could something go so wrong at such a large scale meaning how could it be that the doctors and hospitals were part of you know prescribing all these medicines But yet there were all these people having so many problems with addictions and overdoses. And so to me, it was similar. Like, how is it that something like this that is so wrong scales to this degree and involves all all these levels of institutions? And, And so I think 
that the medicine is so uh, bureaucratic and I don't know hmm. that people involved in this movement always understand that aspect because there's been such a divide between like working physicians um, and people who are opposing this. Um, and a lot of physicians working, you know, uh, kind of go along with the system. And so there's just things like um, the way the regulate regulatory uh, uh, um, laws are put into place in healthcare is very much top down, like what's happened in education in general. So because things are so bureaucratic, you'll have, for example, like health and human services. Um, have some new, you know, regulation they think should be put into place. And then they, 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 the force of their power to keep hospitals credentialed, they'll just say, oh, hey, this needs to be done. And then hospitals will just do it. So it doesn't go through a process of like doctors saying, oh, well, wait a second, I have some problems here. And I'm sure they have panels and people who are serve, you know, uh, in roles, but there's not a, a diversity of thought. So it just seemed like with gender, you know, a lot of these top down, like, oh, hey, you have to, you know, have these bathroom laws or, you know, in a doctor's office, you have to have forms that have, you know, 10 genders on them. It, those are just things that just you go into work one day and it's all all just there. Mm. So it's scaling very quickly. And that was similar with the opioid crisis when they decided to do the pain scale. Um, and they enforce that as a regulation that if the hospitals didn't do the pain scale, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get reimbursed, um, or certain bonus schemes that would go along for physician reimbursement. So it huh. was all of a sudden it just scaled and all of a sudden everybody's being asked what their pain level is, but it wasn't an analysis. It wasn't like, Oh, Hey, we're missing us. There's a subset of people. Maybe we're not doing a good job with that. Let's kind of just work on that. It just is a system wide approach. So you, you are catching a much larger group of people that don't actually have the medical problem. And it's part of what creates the massive pipeline of a misdiagnosis and a misapplication of a treatment to people that don't have the right diagnosis. And that's what I've seen with gender. It's like, there's gender dysphoria and certainly we can talk about all the, you know, there's the different inputs creating the market around that maybe, you know, but let, yeah. it's a, it's a real thing, but what's being misapplied is sort of a one size fits all like, Oh, you have gender dysphoria. This is the treatment. Um, and the regulatory state around healthcare is what has, allowed that to scale in such a very devastating way. Hmm. So I, I take it that you don't uh, agree with the path that the medical system, at least in the United States, has taken with regard to the medicalization of gender distress or gender distressed individuals. Yeah, th that's correct, because I feel like it has been um, just generalized in, in a top-down fashion. So okay. I feel that there are kids, you know, and young adults with 
comorbidities, uh, co-occurring mental health issues, a variety of things that are getting caught up in a path that's sort of just a one size fits, you know, fits all again, similar mm. to opioids, like, oh, your pain level is an eight, you get, you know, here's a bottle of pills, because I need you to say your pain level is less, so we can, you know, get oh. a better score. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's go back in time. So uh, sure. once upon a time, I was 19. And yeah. I had a job in a hospital, I worked in the OR as housekeeping. And so I kind of wandered around all day mopping up surgeons, bloody leftovers and doing different things, just cleaning up the place. Uh, And at that time, I noticed that there was this chart that just kind of appeared one day and maybe it already been there, but like I just found it and there was a row of like probably eight or 10 smiley faces or emojis, what would later become emojis from a weepy to a elated uh, zero to one scale or 10 to one or whatever it was. And I just, I laughed at that right away because it was just so subjective. It's like, you can't, everybody's got like, it's like, uh, which blue, which color is blue. It's like nobody, everybody just sees blue, but we don't really, you can't really scale like how blue is this picture. You know, it's like, it's a very phenomenological existential question. How do you feel? Um, so I thought that was kind of silly, but I kind of see how it could make sense to help, you know, uh, a doctor, but like, I would say, okay, well, what's a 10? You want to chop my leg off right now without anything? That would be a 10. Like, what's a 10? Like, well, I don't even know what a 10 is, you know, like, can, can you give me the experience of a 10 and then give me experience of a zero with pain? And then I could say, okay, here's where I am, but there's no, you guys don't administer or doctors never administered like brief torture um, in order to show what the scale actually meant or to standardize this uh, scale. So that's what you're calling the pain scale. Yeah. Yes. Yes. How did it come? Where did it come about? Yeah. And how, what was its function to begin with? Yeah. A great, great question. Of course, you know, comes from good intentions to want to treat people's pain. But, you know, it's interesting um, trajectory that really like coming uh, the 80s and 90s, there was a movement to um, destigmatize the use of opioids coming off of a period when it was sort of like, no, you can't use opioids and then sort of Uh, address people's pain. I think a a key thing happened in the 80s when they um, expanded um, the the disability uh, categories and processes. So more people could be categorized as uh, disabled. And part of that definition related to chronic issues whereas so for example if you had you know diabetes and hypertension that doesn't mean you were necessarily disabled and couldn't work but they created they changed the way things were categorized where you could have an aggregate of medical problems and you could get on disability and some of that was related to to pain issues so that was new and i'm not saying certainly there wouldn't be appropriate times when more people might have, you know, need to be on disability, but it widened up the category. And then I think that there was definitely more of a market of people who, you know, once they got on disability and maybe they could work, but you sort of become 
defined by this new, you know, medical category, like I'm disabled. There was like a new market, I think, for for people being on pain medicines. That was part of it. And then I think also as healthcare's gotten more and more expensive, a lot of the regulatory state, the think tanks, the people involved in the medical industrial complex have really moved towards figuring out how can I um, show value in healthcare. And I think that that kind of got combined with like a, the anesthesiologists and pain society saying, well, we need to do a better job controlling pain. And again, there's also aging population with arthritis. All these things are true. Yeah. But there was a push to say, hey, we need to do a better job controlling pain. We need to measure it better. So the pain society, I think it was kind of late, the late, there's, like, there's literally the like, it's not yeah. like a Thomas pain society where they sit around and yeah, dream about a, revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like a pain society. <laughs> well, it was a revolution in pain control. <laughs> they basically said, Hey, we need this pain scale. They came up with the scale. And then the VA, the veterans administration is often one of the first uh, places you'll see when um, things are trying to be scaled in healthcare, people will go to the VA first. And, and part of that is because, you know, it's, that's technically our truly socialized part of our healthcare system. So they got the pain scale instituted in the in the VA um, and and started saying, okay, hey, we're measuring pain control or pain levels. And then somewhere in there, you know, the AMA and other, you know, quality regulatory folks said, oh, we need to make this more of a general issue in in all of of, of our across the healthcare landscape. Did and they, did they yeah. bother to define pain? Could you define pain in their terms? They use no, they use it's the scale. The scale became So it's purely um, relative. It's a purely relative Yes, coming but coming from, you know, good intentions of saying this is something we want to do do better at. Um oh and in sorry in there I forgot to say that there was also a kind of a push to acknowledge um, pain, acute pain outside of also cancer, you know, so getting into, cause historically it used to be like people with severe pain are associated with, you know, God forbid having cancer or some type of, you know, severe, severe disability that would cause a lot of pain. So yeah. there was this push and it got generalized, but the pain scale, I think you also have to see it's like part of the dawning of, right, the internet and um, algorithms and software where it's very seductive to have a scale that's like an easy to measure thing, right? Because yeah. when you're dealing with a big bureaucracy and you've got like, here's a number scale and we can match that then to quality metrics, meaning how well is the hospital doing? Yeah. How well is the physician doing? Um, and in the early, like 2001 in there, Purdue Pharma said, oh, we'll fund, we'll fund um, a, a big quality study. Um, the AMA, Purdue Pharma, um, and another regular sort of a, another area in medicine, one of these like, you know, quality groups basically embarked on a, on a big study to say, we're going to, you know, measure pain across, you know, we're going to do better at this. And it was funded actually by Purdue Pharma. And then it, it, it got, why, why is know, Purdue Pharma particularly yeah. interesting? Is there anything, or is it just a, oh, maybe it's just any old. Pharma. Oh, they're the oxycodone 
people and and they were they before the, that yeah they they um they like manufacture oxycodone and, and produce all that and oxycontin so they're basically big pharma got together with the regulators to say oh hey wouldn't this be great if you did a better you know let's do a study measuring pain control and we'll totally fund it and so they're basically creating a market for you know for themselves yeah more Could, patients to be prescribed their medicines, you know? I, 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 yeah. I honor that you don't know everything, but do you know yeah. what oxycodone is made out of? Like what's the process of producing it? Do they go over, like they kind of just ransack Afghan for its poppy supply? <laughs> well, it is, it is, it is synthetic. Yeah. Okay. It's an, it's synthetic. I mean, I, I can't tell you okay. exactly, How? but synthetic, okay. like in the, you know, do they need a bunch factory? of poppy fields? Yeah. Do they need a bunch of poppy fields? Um, no. Okay. It's all Just like question. chemically. Yeah. Yeah. Chemically okay. like made, like, like it's, you know, you know, breaking bad or, well, yeah, it's just, it, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm totally making oh, yeah. a, a very probably, yeah. you know, specious yeah. uh, association yeah. in my mind between uh -huh. the opioid epidemic and yeah. our, and the United States involvement in Afghanistan and the rise of oh, heroin production right up to the moment where the United States leaves Afghanistan, their, you know, poppy, um, you know, industry completely tanks because nobody wanted to do it anyways. And at the same time, somehow our opioid crisis kind of like kind of ebbs well, away. So I don't know. I was just thinking that, like there's an overlap. No, that, 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 that's a great, I, I had never, never thought, thought of it, thought of it th that way. You know, I really think of it as sort of like, again, what is the regulatory institutional hmm. processes that are sort of cr like, to me, they created a whole new giant pipeline of people that that were being matched for a treatment to have pills, you know, like yeah. a whole new cohort of people that not saying they didn't have pain. But as you mentioned, it could be subjective, but they also widened out, you know, like I would see people that, you know, had chronic migraine headaches and certainly that can be painful, but, you know, they would be just able to manage in their lives, take some Motrin, Tylenol, whatnot. But what happened was all of a sudden a, the system was saying, oh, no, you need this much more powerful medication because if you're telling me your headache is at an eight, mm. you know, I'm supposed to give you this stronger medication. And so some people got addicted, not everybody, but some people, and then their pain also could be a, a surrogate for other issues. So like depression, anxiety, somatization. Yeah, I have a lot of pain, but maybe it's just really that they had a lot of depression, anxiety, and other issues. So parsing out, you know, emotional disorders got caught into it. And, and I think that, again, is a parallel with what's going on with gender. Um, there's the dysphoria, but there's a lot of things that that combine to make someone dysphoric. And if if there's underlying anxiety, depression, um, you know, body, you know, anorexia, bulimia, let, let's let's address those. And similar what happened with this scaling up of people getting narcotics 
was that, um, you know, maybe you, you have migraine headaches, but it's like, well, just continue with the Motrin Tylenol. But the expectation in the systems became, well, no, it's not okay for someone to leave with the same pain scale number. You know, okay. you got to do something. And, yeah. and that doing something created a big huh. problem. Does One metric to rule them a, all kind of thing. Exactly. Which is a tendency exactly. in, in human systems. It, it is. And I think in big bureaucratic systems yeah. that are looking to measure their value or say, hey, all these trillions of dollars going to healthcare is worth it. We're curing people. It's yeah. very seductive if they if they have something like this to point to. It's yeah. a e easy to, you know, and with computerization now, I think there's even more of a, you know, push um, things that, um, you know, can be easily measured are very, very seductive in the com in the computer age. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you know, you know, a lot of things in healthcare. Yeah. yeah. So. So I, I um, but, interrupted yeah. you. You said that Purdue yes. funded yeah. this study, this landmark study. So what do they do? Do you, do you recall how they did? Do they just go over there and pull a bunch of people off the street and start giving them oxy? Mm -hmm. like, hey, kids, <laughs> you want some drugs? Like, how do they go about like proving that? Well, yeah, well, 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 what, you know, again, part of the story is that these regulatory bodies. So like the, it was called the Joint Commission, which is a. Um, hmm. Hmm. A part of the government that credentials hospitals as like meeting standards and safe basically yeah. said in the early 2000s that you have to use the pain scale as part of how we would be maintaining standards. So that's where pain is the fifth vital sign. You oh. may have heard that. No. Yeah. So you'd have temperature, heart rate. Um, oxygen level, respiratory rate, those are your basic vital signs. Well, pain, what's your pain level, mm -hmm. became the quote-unquote fifth vital sign in the early 2000s because the regulatory body, the credentials, hospitals, and, doc, and, and clinics said this is mandatory. So when you're asking how, to, how did it you know, get into the stream, well, any person that came into the hospital, if you came given. into the ER, yeah, because you twisted your, you know, let's say you, you, know, you needed a medication refill. They'd be like, are you having any pain now? And you made me think, oh, I, I actually, maybe my back hurts, you know, but you didn't come in for that. And so it got into the system. And so then again, measuring how well people did became part of the process. And so um, it just was like a push to prescribe. And and there's there's a lot of stories and, and writings on like how Purdue Pharma paid, you know, their sales force, um, and, and basically motivated them to be very aggressive um, into hospitals. Some of that interaction with pharmaceutical reps now has been completely, you know, changed in part oh. because of what happened. So really? when, yeah, when I started practicing medicine, you know, we'd have pharma reps that'd be like, you know, bring breakfast to the ER and they'd be standing there and want to tell you about their new whatever. Yeah. None of that stuff is allowed anymore. Okay. Um, but or taking, Yeah. But um, so yeah. uh, the gender issue circumvents yes. that regulatory because it's no longer pharma reps, it's HR departments. It's it's like another class of people that are pushing in, uh, you know, this this one size fits all metric and solution. 
right? And it's the activist I, I, class. Yeah. Well, I think what 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 I see is um, the activist class is getting into the healthcare regulations is almost it's really kind of like what pharma was doing before. And there really needs to be probably like you need to look at them as almost like pharmaceutical reps in a way that used to have free reign. Yeah. Um, the activists have gotten into the, the regulatory apparatus. A key example is I think back in 2014, I saw that um, WPATH had been advocating um, to get um, specialized gender fields into the electronic health record. This is 2014, uh, and by almost fields, 10 years. Yeah. So yeah. by fields, you mean those little boxes that are checked? So just like the language, the exactly mindset, right. the way that the system looks at the individuals of which it is responsible or taken care of, it added that dimension to it. So it's another kind of pain. Gender is a pain scale. It's like, okay, where's your gender today? And and here here's all these icons that, you know, you have G.I. Joe on one end and you have Barbie on the other end, or you have a happy face or a weeping face. It's the same thing. And tell us where you are. So it's just another kind of perception that the bureaucratic apparatus uses in order to look and then therefore reify a certain sort of vision of what the patient is, of what the human is. Right. And and this is, again, you, you from the activist standpoint, they'll say, well, you know, not having those fields in the electronic health record or checkboxes is, you know, isn't nice is is hurting their feelings right <laughs> but from the the clinical standpoint anyone you talk to regardless of this issue more check boxes and more fields is the last thing anybody needs huh. in healthcare with these electronic health records larded up with a lot of stuff yeah. they're basically billing tools and it just anything that can introduce confusion is dangerous from a safety standpoint you know so well okay that's well yeah. i mean you're bringing up these problems with this way yes. of viewing things yes yes but before we get there how yeah. did the system see or recognize or come to grips or hold itself accountable for the problems that it was complicit in with regard to doping up the American population over the course of what, a decade, couple decades, decade and a half? It didn't. It didn't. Um, right. The opioid crisis, to some degree... And was nipped in the bud. I think that it was it, it it was been diminished, but the echoes and the um the waves from it are are still going on because you have uh, generations of people that were addicted that then they couldn't get treatment for their addiction and and sort of switch to street drugs. Um, so that that's one thing. But the AMA, as I shared with you, had had partnered with. Purdue Pharma to do quality, you know, studies. Um, they <laughs> have never really admitted that they contributed to the problem by being part of this regulatory bullying, so yeah. to speak. But so why they would never they? they never have. 
who would hold them accountable. That's the, when I get down to the brass okay. tacks of the gender thing. It's like, okay, well, there's yeah. all these medical, it's this, it's this loop. Yeah. It's like, we yes. do this because all the medical uh, associations say yeah. we should do this, but who's yeah. telling the medical associations they should do this and on what basis are they doing that? And how will they ever say, okay, listen, we made a mistake because they always have to, by okay. definition, they have to be right. By definition, okay, they, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, they can't make mistakes because they okay. are what right is. Yeah, they, they, they won't ever say they made a mistake. So so the thing is to understand about the AMA um, and, and all of these people is they're 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 like government contractors. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think people really understand this. So the AMA, I mean, a small portion of doctors belong to the AMA. I'm not saying, you know, historically they had a different role, but in the modern yeah. era, post- Medicare and Medicaid in our country, which is in the mid 60s, that was really when obviously the bureaucracy grew and it became po political because you're talking about, you know, things in, in the government budgets, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The AMA owns um, and produces all of the billing codes, which is the language at which doctors would translate like, you know, someone comes in with chest pain, um, you do all your things. But to bill for that encounter, there's like a, a language called these billing codes. Yeah. And the AMA owns the process to get new billing codes. They publish the codes. That's how they make money. That's where their big, big, big money is. Wait, why do they so, need? To, why do they need to make money? Who makes the money? Um, because they they need a revenue stream, and they're sort of like lobbyists in a way. They 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 want to continue to have a good relationship with the government because the Health and Human Services uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, they're the insurers. And so they're basically like middlemen with a business. And what be because there's people that work for the AMA that don't practice medicine anymore and they have luxurious salaries that they wouldn't have if they were practicing. And yeah. I don't know, people want to do different, you know, different, different things. Not, not to say that's the only thing the AMA does, but that's their revenue stream. So you have to understand they're not going to go, if the, if the, if the prevailing winds shift, so say with gender, it's like, okay, it's discriminatory. If you don't, you know, if you don't give these people what they want, you're discriminating. Well, the AMA is just going to go along with it. And, and you have to understand the American Psychiatric Association owns the whole process of creating the DSM manual and all of the things around that and publishing the manual. And so the insurance companies have to pay to use the codes. It's a whole entire giant bureaucratic system to bill mm -hmm. in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they all are part, that's their business model. It's not listening, you know, to the doctors who say, oh, my God, there's these horrible ethical things going on. So in the opioid crisis, they went along with the whole thing. And then they kind of play both sides like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, people who are addicted and we should do something about that. But they never really called. They never wanted to stop it, the Trump administration took out the pain scale from reimbursement. They took that out of the regulation. But of course, that culture, you know, has lived on. And so related to gender, um, the associations are just going to go along as long as the government, uh, you know, 
apparatus is saying, you know, you have to cover these people with insurance. You have to, if you don't do any of this stuff, it's discrimination. Okay. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah. They're not, okay. they're not like, um, you know, sort of dispassionate, you know, actors who are like helping doctors well, be, with issues. No such thing as yeah, yeah, yeah. Passionate actors <laughs> down to it, but That's so true. in, in a system like a national health system, yeah. uh, like the, the Brits have, yeah. The NIH or NHI or whatever yeah. it is, National mm -hmm. Health Institute, whatever. Yeah. Um, they have some sort of oversight. It, it seems like it's a little cleaner for them to make decisions than it is for the American side of things. Because everybody, it's like, it's just kind of like this, it's not quite a house of cards, but there's just so many different, it's like, it's not government, but so enmeshed in government that it might as well be government, but it's, it's private investors. And then you have the insurance companies too, and it's all kind of just propping itself up. And it has to perpetually be propping itself up. So when it glitches out with regard to something like just uh, partnering with a pharmaceutical company to put this drug front and center in every hospital for a certain number of years. And, you know, how could that not lead to some sort of overcorrection, let's say? Then how does it correct itself? It just kind of like gobbles it up or closes in on itself it's just like such a weird murky messy how would you reform that how would one go about saying okay listen i guess the trump administration you said did do one punch and say okay we're gonna take this opioid thing we've we've noted we've noticed that we're gonna take it out not to say that you can't give those to people you can't sell that product but but it's just not gonna be reimbursed in some way can the same thing happen with gender on what level which part starts to change the system i guess with the gender uh, issue, the detransitioners could start to sue more and more and more. And yeah. then the state policymakers would say, okay, well, we have to, you have to provide care for detransitioners. The APA is going to say, well, whatever. But the insurance company is like, well, okay, we're not going to cover gender surgeries anymore. And then you have a decrease of like these, this tremendous amount of gender clinics, right? So there's all these different vectors of reforming the yeah. system when it's doing something that isn't, is harmful, let's say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, but we can't we can't rely on the AMA or the APA to do no. the changing. No. 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 They're the they're I, the I, I, they're the dog, not the tail. Like like they're yeah, the ones that are I, wagged. Yeah, because I think with them, what's gonna what's gonna end up happening? Unless I mean, there is a new little wrinkle that you know the American Academy of Pediatrics is being sued in one of the lawsuits now during yeah. the opioid crisis. The AMA wasn't ever sued, and the and a pain society people weren't sued or anything like that who would have so, I mean, sued there them is, like is there like what, was there like would that have happened like you, um, you, I mean, you made it, me addicted to drugs have. well it it, it it could have but of course that that's this element of how the regulatory apparatus contributed which i actually think is not told a lot it, it, it to me it's like they created the market just like asking your gender in schools is creating a pipeline, right? So the AMA created, helped create the pipeline. But um, hmm. I, I think that the regulatory bureaucracy is obviously, at, you know, like end stage, cancer stage. The question is, you know, for a lot of things, how will that unfold in America? But I mean, part of how, you know, some of the things that brought the opioid crisis more or, or like it peaked and was declining 
Um, I mean, the, um, the attorneys generals in a lot of states were suing basically okay. the pharmaceutical companies and the pharmacies for filling ridiculous amounts of drugs. And they were doing it based on nuisance laws saying like all and, you know, I'm not an attorney, but a lot of yeah. these overdoses and and the burden on police and, and, and paramedics. So the lawsuits are key. And we oh. see that going on. We see that going on with the detransitioners. I do think, though, again, if you want to look at parallels, what worked, I do think a critical pathway to ending this is you've got to figure out how to ensnarl the pharmacies. The same thing. You've got to get um, Walmart, CVS, Walgreens. How do you get them as part of, you know, you should be filling this stuff? Okay. Um, and that gets me to another thing that was part of how there was a peak and decline. Um, there are pers- the 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 um, states passed um, more robust prescription drug monitoring laws. Prescription drug monitoring has been around for a really long time, mm-hmm. but with the advent of like computerization and software, there was ability to link up pharmacies and then have software interfaces where I could look um, into a pharmacy. Like I, like if a patient came in, I could look into the portal and see, oh my God, you know, oh yeah, this guy's saying expo, he hasn't filled his, whatever for a month and then i can look and see oh at the walgreens he filled 120 pills yesterday and then would go in and say i'm not gonna fill your prescription now for me personally i had drawn the line with a lot of these people like i didn't need to look into the computer system to say i wasn't going to do something because i knew it was wrong to fill the prescriptions but what was super important i mean i there weren't a lot of people like me. Most of the doctors went along and filled the scripts. What the prescription drug monitoring system did is it gave them what I call digital moral courage because they could look and say, oh, I looked in the system and I see you're not telling the truth. So I'm not going to fill this. It helped them say no. Because a lot of this to me is how do you say no to these? How do you get the doctor not to write the prescription for the hormones? How do you get the doctor not to say they're going to do surgery? And so that's where the prescription drug monitoring is super important. These are the things that you have to um, accept how to work within the regulatory state and be smart about it. This is where, as a conservative, I criticize my own conservatives because they think they're just like, what? Why would you do it? You, you, are, you are missing, you are losing valuable ground by not getting this stuff passed in the red states where you would have to do prescription monitoring for all the hormone script, scripts, you know. I mean, you have to, you know, the legislation would have like nuance, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. missing, missing, missing the boat on that. Um, so that was a huge thing. Um, I think the other thing that I talk about a lot that we're conservatives or people fighting this or missing the vote on is like we touched on the changes in electronic health record that WPATH had been advocating almost 10 years ago. And you can slowly see how it is rolled out through Epic, which is one of the big electronic health record um, uh, you know, manufacturers that has their software in across 
I think they have about 35% of the market in our country, but the um, in in England, Sex Matters was just posting about how the Epic module went live over there with the different you know gender fields. Um, it to me, it's like real ID, okay? And states that that just say, okay, you could identify as a man, but it, your driver's license has to reflect the the accuracy of your biologic sex. That to me is low hanging fruit and a no brainer. There should be a law that in you go in the hospital, the electronic health record has to clearly reflect the biologic sex of the patient. It's not to say that we're not um, accommodating to different gender of expressions, course, of blah, blah, blah. hundred percent. And before they made these changes, we would, I worked in a hospital, um, that served the gay and transgender community in Chicago. And, and before the pandemic, we would just, you know, there was no issue with the patients or the staff. Everyone was respectful. We're there to take care of patients. It's not political, yeah. but we would just write in the margin, you know, likes to be called, you know, they register John Smith, male, and in the margin, um, the registrar would write identifies as a female, likes to call be called Sue. No one had a problem. The patient didn't have a problem. The staff didn't have a problem. It, it has to have integrity inside the medical record for reason. It's a safety. It's a safety issue. So when you're asking about, you know, how does how does this end? It doesn't end by convincing the AMA, the because okay. because at a certain tipping point, they're going to start saying, yeah, we we care about these detransitioners. They're going to play it both ways. Yeah. But, okay. But you got to get in the system and do the things that you can do. Um, to, to stick with reality and to, and, and to stick with safety. Yeah, well, the thing is, um, I guess the data is just going to be longer in coming with the effects of exogenous cross-sex hormones. And we're seeing with the detransitioners, rising levels of regret, surgical um, yeah. issues, uh, you know, just like the basic facts that a lot of these surgeries are still, I mean, the mastectomies, I, I think, is probably a little bit further along, but this genital fabrication yeah. surgeries like those things are very crude you know um but yeah. you know the the longer in the impact of 40 years on testosterone for a female body estrogen for a male body is not clearly known it's not going to be the same as a bunch of people showing up and you know overdosing on drugs so right. the, the nuisance right. angle is going to take longer for like these attorneys generals were able to prosecute or at least form databases because it was very obvious that this issue, this death or this overdose was related directly to an overprescription right. of drugs. Whereas testosterone, estrogen, fuzzy stuff, I mean, puberty blockers. And the other thing, like we know, both of us know, the data is not there. Like who's, who's collecting the data on these surgeries, on these hormone replacements, on these therapies, so-called? Like, where is it? And who, who, why, why is it not, why is it not being collected? I mean, if the, if the state would just say we need the data, so everything has to be, uh, you know, would that not just be easy just to get the data? Like, let's look, let's collate. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not collecting the data. Um, it, some of it is that the infer, you know, so like with the opioid crisis, there are already um, parts of the government that were, 
tracking addiction and those type of issues. So they had already been tracking overdoses and things. So in a way, it's because that already existed. It's like they captured the data. But I will tell you, there's just, you know, personally, I lived through it, but there's unbelievable charts of just showing the rise of overdoses and, and just still nothing was being done. Yeah. Okay. It's like, that's what's shocking. Again, the parallels, it's like how you would think in our country, if they're saying, Oh my God, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, I mean, years more than the Vietnam war, 70,000 people overdose. Now I think this year it's up to a hundred thousand. And it, during the passing out of all the pills, they're just, like, Oh, you know, and of course, like I, because I practice emergency medicine, mm. yeah, you're per, so-and-so's prescribing the pills, but they're not, the, the paramedics aren't showing up at your office, dropping them off in overdose. They're showing up at where I work. Yeah. And so there was this disconnect, but it was roundly ignored for years until the lawsuit started. Okay. Mm. So, so yes, you're right. I mean, I mean, they're not collecting the data. And now because it's so politicized, it's sort of convenient. They're, if, if the data isn't there, it doesn't exist, right, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no billing code for detransitioners. I think we've, you know, ta- talked yeah. about before. Um, so how can you, you know, they say, oh, the regret is low and the this and that's low. Well, if in healthcare, if you don't have a billing code, for detransitioners, how, how do you know when someone has come to your office um, and, and you know, they, they're trying to figure out, well, what hormone replacement should they be on? Or maybe they've got some, you know, different issue, but they're not even categorized as a detransitioner. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not. Um, I think, again, it, it it's going to take lawsuits. It's going to take um, insurance coverage of of. The detransitioners, I do think that that's, you know, a very important issue because once you get the the business of medicine having to pay attention to it, the other areas are going to have to fall in line because they'll, they'll have to create a billing code, yeah. you know, if insurance companies are forced to... Um, you know, cover, cover all of, cover all of this, but the long-term complications. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a travesty that we're not systematically, Hmm. um, you know, tracking things like that. Um, I, I, I think, you know, there will be a lot of, you know, cancers and, and, you know, blood clots and things. And the question is going to be, well, is it from all of this? Um, Uh, so probably like when tobacco, you know, cigarettes and they were trying to say it wasn't related was, I mean, there's, there's some things from the past where, um, you know, hormones were used more widely, um, in different situations where there are cancers have been associated that's known, but there's, there's nothing that's been at this large scale. Yeah. So, so you're right. I mean, it's. What about, or what's your take on, uh, like an institution like Planned Parenthood that's pushing yeah. this stuff. Are they a extra government regulatory thing? They're kind of semi pharma, semi uh, surgical. Like you can go there, get an abortion. It's nobody's business. You can go there, get testosterone. It's nobody's business. So like an entity mm-hmm. like Planned Parenthood kind of semi private yeah. uh, entity. 
NGO-ish thing. Yeah. Like, uh, to what degree are they responsible for keeping track of data? Like, are, are there abortion rates? Is, the, is that documented at all? Or are there laws in place just with abortion? Because it does translate directly into gender-affirming care, so-called. Yeah, I think that's a very, very important point to talk about abortion and abortion politics with this. Because if you see, if you read like the blue state um, legislation and and follow yep. that, and even at the national level, um, this gender um, it's bodily autonomy med- it's medicalization. Same. Well, and it's also always put in like abortion care and gender care. It's put together in the same regulation, yeah. um, f- very purposely. Um, purposely, yeah. Uh, Planned Parenthood, you know. It plays it plays a huge huge role because they're a giant network. Um, they're they basically have carve outs in terms of you know regular regulatory oversight. Um, in my opinion, what do you mean carve outs? Um, I, I, um, I just think that they're they're I don't know what happened there. Any type of um, uh, sort of things that should be a safety regulations on them are very much always politicized. For example. There's been, you know, attempts to say, oh, you know, um, a clinic has to have they the doctors have to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital in case something goes wrong. Just giving you an example. Well, they've resisted that. Um, So what I mean is if you're at Planned Parenthood and you have an abortion and something goes wrong, meaning there's like you're you're bleeding out, which is typically what happens. They can't stop the bleeding. They they send the person by ambulance to the closest ER, um, it, you know, and 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 there like I've been on the receiving end of this. So the patient comes in, you stabilize them. If they have to go to the OR because they have to surgically do something to stop the bleeding, the on-call gynecologist has has to take the patient. It, but if you're a surgery center doing, say, like a tonsillectomy, you you have to have admitting privileges at the hospital nearby in case something something goes wrong or you you contract with, you know, you say Dr. So-and-so is covering for my patients. So what okay. I'm trying to say is Planned Parenthood doesn't have to have that. And so you get doctors who are forced to take on their cases that they're not even their patients and they're oh. dealing with their complications. Okay. I can tell you at least that's how, how it is in Illinois. And I've been on the receiving end of people who've almost died. And, and, and you call, call Planned Parenthood and there's an answering machine and they sent the patient over. And then a doctor who isn't, you know, is all of a sudden has to take, take care of that patient. So I'm, I'm saying that the reason I'm mentioning that is because they have been masterful at couching any type of standards of practice and medicine that they're asked to do at the same level that we do for everything else is couched as anti-abortion, bigoted, X, Y, Z. Whereas for me, it's not political. It's about safety. Why would they have to have a carve out and not have to have the same safety things as as anybody other surgical procedure? So that's what I'm trying to say in relation to gender. It's the same thing. They they've they've shield themselves because it's like, oh, oh, you're you're bigoted, you're transphobe, you're this, that and the other thing. And meanwhile, 
inappropriately passing out hormones, not doing appropriate assessments, as we know from some of the detransitioners. Yeah, like Helena Kirshner, people just unsafe, unsafe. So, so that's what, what, how it's parallel and very, very dangerous. And that's where something like prescription drug monitoring is so important because it would capture all of that prescription writing going on. And you could then tie the prescription writing to the actual prescriber. And that is how you get a trail that then you can get into um, legal proceedings. Like that's yeah. what, you know, and you make people think twice. Hopefully the prescriber would think twice of that you're, you know, this is in a, in a system. And then that's how you get to the pharmacies too. You say, look, you shouldn't be prescribing all of this. Um, do you, are you cross-referencing it with, you know, again, a lot of these kids have mental health issues. What about all the meds they're on cross-reacting with testosterone and estrogen? That is a whole huge area that's not talked about as much. It's very, very dangerous. Um, I think it's some of the root of... I think the prescription drug monitoring is critical. I think it's some of I, yeah. root of the um, the school shootings uh, is there. There should be a law that any of those school shooters, I mean, any mass shooters. But if you're talking about the school shootings, um, they need to have their prescriptions, their pharmacy records opened up automatically if that happens. Because if you're on amphetamines, ADHD meds, Maybe you're on testosterone, you're on all of these things. You could be floridly psychotic and very aggressive. And so I think it's just like a public health issue as yeah. well. So if if I went to a pharmacy and I said that I really want yeah. to beef up, could you give me some testosterone? Like I want to beef up. I don't feel, I feel weak, feel low energy. Can, can I get some testosterone? Give me my edge back. I can beef up. I can punch people when they punch me, or I could be the first punch. They'll say no, right? Right. Because that, that's not a valid pass. Well, but if I say not, I feel yeah. like a woman, give me estrogen. It's like okay. Well, here you go. I mean, it's just it, it's like this pain yes. scale again. Yes. How are these experts so called? allowing for this exceptionally asinine subjective ideology to infiltrate and then produce like this massive cohort of drugged up people. Like how, yeah. how, I, I do think part of the story is that it's conflated with homosexuality. And I think that a lot of people who maybe haven't thought about it as deeply as us and are in, mm. into it or v for various different reasons, they hear like, they think it's like the same as that you're homophobic, which of course it isn't. We actually know that so many, uh, you know, young gay kids who aren't yet, you know, um, like understanding that they're, that they're gay are caught up in this and, and to think that we're harming gay kids and not letting them just be gay is just like so a pushback to a retro back to horrible times in the 20th century when they do horrible things to gay people. So I think that it gets conflated with that. I think the other thing is it hundred percent gets conflated with um, 
uh, sexual freedom, which we sort of talked about a little bit with abortion, but there have already been carve outs since uh, the the I think it, I'd have to look back, but started in the 90s in in healthcare, where if if a 16 year old comes into the ER, for example, and and wants ST, STD sexually transmitted disease testing, I'm not allowed to get consent from the parents. But if 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 I need to give her give them a Tylenol, I, you know, I yeah. or if I need if they need to get their appendix out, we obviously call the parents and say, you know, this or that or the parents because they've done a carve out for sexual behavior or sexual what you want to call sexual, you know, freedom, sexual libertarianism, yeah. depending on how are you. It already exists for 12 and up in many, many states. And again, I'm in, in, in a blue state, but I think it's also written into federal regulations. And this is capitalizing on that pathway that's already been created. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I think sometimes people also don't get about the whole giant regulatory apparatus. There's a carve out for like, you know, uh, pregnancy, STDs, abortion for if you're under 18 already, between 12 and 18. And if you see a lot of the policy things going on, they fit right into that channel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I of, am of the mind that ideologically transhumanism is downstreams for, downstream in a lot of ways from um, – a certain form of free market capitalist libertarian mm -hmm. kind of uh, self-actualization. Yeah. I mean, just ideologically, um, ideologically, this is an uncomfortable point, uh, but ideologically, once we start to call a human fetus a clump of cells, that leads to women kind of just not really, uh, just the concept of woman starts to erode once we start yeah. to erode the concept of pregnancy and the concept of human it it all just kind of cascades and then like what does sex even matter if like if it's just it just it's just a bunch of cells it's pleasure nobody there's no meaning there we can't prescribe meaning to it it's just it's meaningless and then once you tug from that once you tug that like it, it just makes sense to me that sexual identity would kind of just spool everything would just spool apart um but what you're bringing up, which is not an ideological point or, or pattern uh, recognition, is that this gender medicine is literally downstream and like a Lego brick that is placed on top of abortion, placed on top of uh, sexual, um, I guess, sexual medicine or STD medicine. It's just like it fits right like that. And so to, how do you make a carve out? How do you make a carve out if it's built on sexual freedom, which you have to not change the entire like cultural apparatus around uh, sexual freedom, around women's rights, around bodily autonomy? Like if, you know, in order to challenge the brick, you'd have to challenge the base or how do you take care of the brick without taking care of the base? Right, right. That's like the gazillion dollar question, right? I mean, I think then that gets into, you know, obviously, you know, cultural things about, you know, family and, um, you know, religion and um, all of those things, because I think that the way a lot of these institutions are now, you have to know what you stand for. And, and you have to know, you have to be in a position before you walk in the door with your kids at school, before you go in the doctor's office, before you 
a, a series of things. You have to know where you stand and you have to be comfortable saying no. And, and I think that at the individual level is kind of where things are at and where a lot of us involved in advocacy are trying to, it, to some degree, work to help educate people and also help give them the tools to say no in situations, you know. Um, but on a system level, I mean, I think things are so ingrained and so deep that it do, it would take, you know, an administration who 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 understands the depth of the problem if they got in to say you know what with a stroke of the pen there no one is getting any medicare or medicaid dollars if your electronic health record doesn't have a field for biologic sex it would then it would change overnight okay i yeah. mean I mean, you have to do things like that, but I, I do think where we're at with our country because of kind of red state, blue state politics and how that's broken down, I do think that in red states, you'll see, you know, more things in one way and in blue states, are, mm -hmm. they're getting very extreme and yeah. in, in another in another way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that kind of, yeah, answer or, I mean, that's how that's how I that's see how it. But, yeah, shaking out. Yeah, but yeah, um, I mean, this is this is another question from earlier sure. conversations that I've had on this topic. Um, yeah. With regard to this is this is kind of beyond the medical field. And thank you, by the way, yeah. for this conversation. I really wanted to have it just so people can see the regulatory capture and just see like the actual the sausage making that that is actually going on here. Because you know you think of it in cultural ways and you think of it in this way that way, political yeah. or cultural ways. Like you're kind of missing the picture that this is just kind of a part of this machine, this mechanism that's huge, fast, and just yeah, has it's momentum. Not this, it's not the sexiest topic not to bring sex no, i mean me. hey drugs but, and but, sex I mean, the thing that we're missing is rock, rock and roll, and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very important because yeah. i feel like people know the healthcare system quote unquote is messed up and in yeah. just with insurance and billing so yeah anyways yeah go but on the, so something like um what california is doing with yeah. the um passing of laws that would enable children to cross state lines and be protected from their parents if they yeah. want a gender affirming yeah. care so-called yeah. um yeah. like from california's point of view to not medically transition a child is child abuse from let's just say florida's point of view to medically transition a child yeah. is child abuse like yeah. one thing is child abuse or the other thing is child abuse they can't both be child abuse exactly what are your thoughts on if that framework where that framework's going to head or how to frame that or like the proper political framing for these laws are the basis on which to uh, conceptualize child transition as healthcare or not healthcare, child abuse, not child abuse, freedom, not freedom, uh, good, bad, evil, whatever. Like, where, where, where do you tend to go to conceptualize the medicalization of children and how it should be approached in a way by the people that you would want to reform the system? Um, I, so I think that, um, it, it would be, so it would be, again, I'll give an analogy. It would be like, if we said, um, well, okay. I would say that it, for putting my medical hat on, 
the what the the way I would talk about it, which I don't think is is expressed a lot, which we need to be talking about it more in this way, is that they're a giant parts of the system that are medicalizing the kids that are for that are misdiagnosing the children. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's like saying if you went to the doctor's office and you know, you, whatever said you had a headache and it was like, Oh, you have a headache. We need to, you know, do brain surgery on you. Okay. It'd be like, wait a second. The diagnosis isn't right. So we're not, I'm not talking like you don't have a headache or this or that. It's just that the diagnosis that it's like something that needs brain surgery is wrong. So I feel like talking about this as trying to find the, the child that will be the unhappy trans adult because of some bodily changes that they won't eventually be able to totally mitigate as an adult and that's going to make them an unhappy person and we want them to be happy so we need to basically do this to make you know find the unhappy trans people in the future well medicine isn't practiced like that Hmm. it's like saying why don't we do the pain scale in schools because eventually there's going to be some kids here who are going to have some chronic pain issues later. So why don't we kind of make sure that they don't ever experience pain. So they're not that unhappy pain person in the future. Well, we just, we don't practice medicine that way because that's not their diagnosis. And I think Mm. that we need to frame it that way that we're misdiagnosing. And when you misdiagnose kids with gender dysphoria, Uh, I mean, they have gender dysphoria, but we're misdiagnosing them as a future unhappy trans person. And in that, oops, I don't know if I froze there again. So I would talk about it in that that way more as a misdiagnosis and a mistreatment, wrong treatment applied is a way way to depoliticize it. And when I went to the American Academy of Pediatrics and interacted with the physicians, that's really kind of how we we talked about it. We Mm. said, we're not here, we're not, this isn't a political thing. We're saying there's kids with gender dysphoria, but those, that group isn't, all of them aren't future unhappy trans people. Mm-hmm. And and so we're applying the wrong and, and, and doctors and clinical people are like, oh, OK, yeah, that that hmm. you have to talk in their language. Yeah. That's for the doctor group. But when you're talking about the regulations, the way the government functions now, which we've talked quite a bit about already, that's where you do have to have clear, you know, this is illegal. This is legal. Um, and I think medical boards, you know, are, are important role like they did in Florida saying, you know, this is experimental again, using medical, you know, medical, um, uh, procedures by saying, Hey, this is an experimental treatment and experimental treatments aren't covered by insurance. So I think that that's important to focus on the experimental nature, because again, Mm -hmm. it kind of takes the politics out of it because, a lot of what the activists have done that has been that are, are are so much smarter in terms of executing on a goal for them is to make basically get their plastic surgery preferences paid for by insurance. And when you say something isn't experimental, 
Um, and then you add in that you're discriminating at, if you don't do what they want. You basically yeah. have a blank check yeah. for them to be getting all of the things they want covered by insurance, yeah. which if you have Medicaid, you're not paying anything for. So yeah. I think you, you have to talk it in doctor language. I do think you have to have laws that that, that define it as experimental um, in terms of these laws about crossing um you know, state state lines. Um, I think that, you know, I'm not, you know, legal policy expert, but they need to really, you know, go after after, you know, after that, um, you know, very, very strongly. I think telemedicine we haven't talked about is um, there's a lot of things that huh. even the red states have passed bans that I think, again, if you don't really understand how medicine works in the in, to today's day and age with the internet and telehealth, you're missing opportunities to put smart regulations and guardrails in. And I think telehealth is another one of those very is much. That's just kind of slipping through the cracks. There's not a lot of regulation around telehealth. There is. There is regulation that you – well, let's put – there are laws that you have to – um, have a license in every state that you prescribe in. Mm -hmm. Um, and the patient has to be so like, hmm. if I was going to prescribe something and you're in Washington, I would have to have a medical license in Washington. But the thing is, a lot of this is not enforced. So again, um, and I know this from some of the detransitioners, they said that they would get prescriptions through telehealth um, and they'd just be like, oh, are you in the state of X? And the detrans the at the time they were still in the throes of this, they would say yes. And they would write them the prescription, mm. but they they weren't. So hmm. there needs to be like kind of cracking down on that, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's a huge, huge problem. There's a lot of people in red state still getting prescriptions. Yeah. That shouldn't be. But I can't just like call up uh, some Chicago doctor and get a bunch of Oxy delivered to my house. Well, interesting narcotics. You can't you cannot prescribe um, uh, via um, tele via telehealth. Mm. Um, so there could be regulations in place that they could enforce similar things with um, these prescriptions. Again, you've got to get into the prescription monitoring and yeah. concept and, and, and go, go there. Yeah. So Carrie, I know you have a yes. fair thing coming up here. Do you want to plug yeah, yeah. your work and how people can follow <laughs> or what you think people who are interested and investigated in this topic uh, should be oh keyed in? Oh my gosh. On? Well, sure. When I'm not in the emergency department, which is kind of one of my hats I wear, I practice emergency medicine. I do not want to see anyone there, um, but I do my advocacy work with the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, and I work on the fair in medicine section of that. So we have fair in the arts, yeah. fair legal. Um, we're building up fair in finance, but I do fair in medicine. So. Um, you know, you, you can go to the the FAIR webpage and they have a drop down for FAIR and medicine. And um, also, I'm on Twitter at, at FAIR and medicine. How spicy um, are you on Twitter, do you think? What's your um, spicy scale? I, zero, to, zero to 10. Three, three jalapenos? Well, 
a ghost pepper. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> no, we're, we're not very, we're, we're not, we're not spicy. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm like a low man on the totem pole of all you like Twitter stars, <laughs> but, uh, no, we're more, yeah, you know, we're not spicy. Um, so, but you, you know, we kind of repost a lot of things. And then if yeah. we're having webinars and things like that, like today yeah. we're, uh, having the, um, uh, Stella O'Malley, yeah. Sasha, yeah, the authors of, you know, when, when your kid says they're trans, yeah. yeah, and what you do about it. And Leslie is going to be interviewing them. And that's going to be, I believe, Twitter on Twitter Live Spaces also. Whatever, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, so we do webinars and, and you know, help parents and, and doctors who, you know, want to learn more or feel uncomfortable speaking out we have you know legal advocacy and so yeah we're we're trying to you know be good collaborative partners with yeah. with everyone working on this so yeah yeah, yeah. well thank, it's been great to get you. to know you in these uh <laughs> these uh this gender uh issue uh or these gender events and Oops. stuff like that oh are you there it, it's it's been it's been awesome you you uh have such a great great style and way of communicating and uh it's so important so it's been a lot of fun meeting you too yeah in person yeah i'm gonna end the recording now okay uh, send people over to your websites which are down there in the description thank you very much